listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today in the show, we have Jesse Felder. Jesse's been managing money for over 20 years. He began his professional career at Bear Stearns and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund firm headquartered in Santa Monica, California. Since founding the Felder Report in 2005, his writing has been featured in many major financial publications. Jesse also hosts and produces the Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom podcast. Enjoy my conversation with Jesse Felder. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So the first thing I like to start out with is talking a little bit about the global financial crisis. So up until that point, we saw SNL crisis. We had the collapse of the tech bubble. We had bailout of long-term capital management, but nothing was really quite like 2008. So take us back to, to what you were doing during that point and how you maybe changed the way you think about the financial system. Yeah, it was a super uh, interesting time. I was just basically managing my own money, and uh, I was managing some separate accounts just for some friends and, and family outside of my own. Um, and I would I had you know started becoming concerned in 2005, really when I saw real estate do what stocks did back in the late 90s. And thought this is this is going to end badly, just like uh, the Nasdaq did in 2001 too. Um, but I had no idea how, just how badly um, it was all going to go down. And in fact, I was heavily short 2007, 2008, and I started covering and getting too far too aggressive, far too early uh, into the decline. Um, and you know, for example, I was short Bank of the Cascades, which was a local, um, a regional bank here in Oregon. Bend was the number one or number two most overvalued real estate market in the country. Um, and so, when I was kind of looking at uh, opportunities, I was looking at Bank of the Cascades was the number one company lending to residential real estate um, here, and it was just insane to me that they were putting all their money. Um, into these these mortgages that you know on prices I, I bought a house here in Bend um, in 2000 late 2004 uh, for three hundred thousand dollars sold it six months later not intending to flip it but you know for a hundred thousand dollars profit I just thought if somebody's going to pay me four hundred thousand dollars in six you know I felt great I'll sell it and move and my family and I rented uh, I had a couple young kids at the time we rented uh, a house after that time for as long as my family could tolerate it. Uh, but so I was just seeing the loans that they were making and, and the valuations at, at some of these houses. And so it was, it was absolutely insane to me. I shorted Bank of the Cascades stock. Stock went down about 50%. I covered it. It ended up going down 
um, 99.8% or something and still hasn't recovered its value from there. So I, I even I didn't, you know, expect Bank of the Cascades to go bankrupt, uh, which essentially they did. They were bought out by, uh, I think, a bank in, in Idaho um, just a few years ago. Uh, but all the equity value was wiped out. So, you know, and I, I started buying stocks. Um, you know, there, there was some terrific value um, into the fall of 2008. That for for me, um, you know, being early uh, buying into that decline was was really really stressful. Going into that the March 2009 sell off to me, we had a really nice rally late in 2008, and I should have sold some things. I was actually buying some of the bank stocks in late 2008, and and traded them fairly well. Um, I think I ended up breaking even on on a bunch of them, um, but. More than that, I was buying stocks like um, Starbucks and and uh, some other things that you know had just gone crazy cheap, um, and then I sold those too early <laughs> in the rebound. But uh, yeah, for, for going through that to me, it was it was uh, even somebody who I felt like was on the right side of the trade. It, I was just absolutely astounded by the extent and the the, the systemic damage that was done as a part of uh, all the, those mortgages going bad. And so to me, it it uh, made me realize, and, and talking to other investors with tons of experience, um, it made you realize that there are times in the markets when there are no bids. Uh, and, and that's something that I think today's investors don't, don't necessarily appreciate, that uh, it happens almost in every single market. Uh, you know, if you give it enough time, and there are times when there are no bids. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, I've always thought I want to be prepared for. I don't want to ever be in the situation where there's no bids. And so I'm, I'm distressed as a result. Uh, and so that's, that's a lesson I took away from that. I felt like the, uh, the dot com bust was significantly different from that because value was so cheap in 2000. And, uh, for those of us value investors, it was difficult leading up to that. But then when the, when the NASDAQ crashed, Value really, really did well in 2001 and two. You know, I think just very roughly the S&P went down 20% or something in, in 2001 and value stocks went up by that same amount. And so you could hide in that, that cheap part of the market. Um, but there's, there's times, and we saw that with stocks in fall of 2008, early 2009, when it feels like there's no bid and things that are extremely cheap just get much, much cheaper. And, uh, and it was it was a a really important learning experience for me. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And going back to you know the year two thousand, you're in a unique situation to be able to understand these market cycles in a way as a lot of investors now haven't experienced maybe even one downturn. And in the year two thousand, you left a multi billion dollar hedge fund that you co founded in part from being jaded from the dot-com mania at the time, and you actually left the week the NASDAQ hit 5,000, you wrote in one of your blog posts on your website that for those who weren't trading in the late 90s, it's not really possible to fully explain the euphoria of the Internet bubble being a true mania. How would you compare this current market to back then? Many people argue it's not really a bubble, of what we saw back then. However, valuations are, are pretty stretched no matter which way you look at it. 
Yeah, I think it's important to um, distinguish between the two different terms. Uh, this is something I've been talking about with my friend Peter Atwater a fair amount lately is that uh, – you, there's the term mania and the term bubble, and I think they're they're separate terms. A bubble is, to me, asset prices that can't be justified by um, reasonable future cash flows. Prices just go go, you know, to an extreme. Jeremy Grantham has, you know, kind of defined it as two standard deviations above um, historical long range um, averages. Um, to me, I think yes, that was a stock market bubble in late '90s, 2000. Today's a stock market bubble, but they're driven by two totally separate manias. Um, the mania that we saw back in the late 90s um, was uh, more of a classic uh, mania, like a, a tulip mania type of thing, where people are basically buying because they think prices are going to be higher a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now. And just to give you an example, I think the average person believed the stock market would return 20% a year indefinitely going forward, even though historically it only done seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, something like that. Uh, and so people, you know, get these, I mean, that's basically to me the definition of euphoria is they, ha- they believe that, um, you know, prices are going to go up, um, indefinitely uh, or, and, and, and in a way that is, you know, not justified historical evidence. Um, there was one guy, so yeah, I had a front row seat. We had the head, hedge fund. I was the head trader. We were trading for several other hedge funds, maybe two or three others in New York, who were placing orders through me all day long. And so I was, you know, was buy fifty thousand spy, sell fifty thousand QQQ, and so I got to witness the their trading um, firsthand. Which these are just prop traders trading for the for the hedge fund. Um, but I also we also had our own uh, broker dealer uh, w- that we would. Uh, allow some of our clients to trade through independently also who weren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, customers in the funds or, or what have you. So there was one um, customer in particular who had um, earned a, a good deal of money uh, in Hollywood. Um, I believe he, he was a stunt man. And uh, he took all of his money and put it, and he was one of these people who classically gave up his day job to trade dot-com stocks. And, you know, that mm-hmm. that sounds like kind of a, you know, like, really, do people do that? Absolutely. People were quitting their day jobs to trade stocks for a living. And so he, he was, you know, he had a sizable amount of money that he tripled, quadrupled in a, in a short period of time trading dot-com stocks. And he asked me, he said, you know, and I kept talking to him. I said, hey, you should really take some of this, put it in the hedge fund, put it in something that's a little bit more sustainable instead of trading your entire net worth, you know, multiple times during the day. And uh, he said, okay, well, tell me about the hedge fund. You know, what how, what, what are you trying to generate in returns? And, and this basically just give you a flavor of kind of the mindset of people. And I said, we're shooting, to, we're shooting for a 20% return per year. Um, if we do our jobs, that's that's what we should generate. Uh and he said, well, if you can't do 100% a year, why would I ever give you my money? And so he was under the this expectation he was going to double his money at least every single year, um, trading.com stocks, which, you know, and he thought that was completely reasonable. So the mania then was was totally different than today, right? We don't have people trying to double their money every year in the stock market, or at least not a huge percentage of the people in the markets are, are under that kind of a mindset. I think the mania that's driving today's bubble is its mania surrounding passive investing. And it's similar, but it's, but it's different in some ways. It's similar in the fact that people believe they, they, no matter what price they pay 
for index funds or passive investments today, they should be they should be entitled to the historical rate of return. So they should be able to get eight or ten percent regardless of the price they pay, which is totally you know um, just uh, disputed by the historical evidence. Which you know my favorite Warren Buffett quote is the price you pay determines your rate of return. Mm-hmm. So you pay a high price, you get a low rate of return. Pay a low low price, get a high rate of return. Today, people are paying some of the highest prices in the history of the U.S. stock market and expecting that's not going to affect their rate of return. To me, that when people at a, on a broad way, now more than half of the money in, in, in the markets today is invested passively. So we have this huge percentage, majority of investors in the markets today that believe that they do, they're, they're entitled to historical rate of return despite the fact that they're paying the highest valuations in history. To me, that's a mania. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the you, going back to the dot com bubble. I remember reading all the books that came out about people scalping before the quotes actually changed from fractions to decimals, and the the mania surrounding that um, was pretty interesting at the time. Yeah, I mean there are all kinds of things going on. There there was the you know uh, there was the Y two K scare, and, and I think really this is this is main, most instructive for today because a lot of the buying in these in these names or a lot of the actual economic um, value that they were generating uh, could be traced back to this Y two K scare, which you know every a lot of people believed that when the clock switched from 1999 to 2000. There would be problems, um, you know, and that maybe the computers would read it as 1900 instead of 2000 and create all kinds of problems with, um, software and, and things. Right. And so a lot of companies, um, decided to upgrade their computers and, and, uh, their software and stuff leading up to this to make sure this wasn't going to be a problem. So there was a huge surge in spending, um, that really boosted semiconductor stocks, software companies. I mean, everything. So there was a real economic boom, um, in 1999. Uh, leading up to this, but then there was a huge hangover when after, you know, um, they'd done all the spending. Well, now we don't need to spend for a number of years because everybody went through this huge upgrade push. And when it wasn't a problem, okay, now the fear's over and uh, we've all upgraded anyways. And so there's a, you know, it's pulling forward future demand, um, to into that one year window, which, Left a, left a hangover. And so you had, you know, a lot of the software stocks and things, Cisco come, stocks were not just crushed because they were overvalued. They were crushed because the economic hangover that uh, happened as, as a result of that. Right. And you mentioned equity valuations, at least in the U.S., being stretched and investors expecting historical returns. And maybe they actually need to be looking at what returns might be based on the current valuations probably lower also when you look at fixed income we've had the this 30-year bond bull market coming to an end although that's debatable you've mentioned the 60 40 portfolio bonds and equities being negatively correlated as kind of a core premise what if stocks and bonds actually go down at the same time yeah, and I think that uh, if you're only invested in financial assets, then you're inv- invested far more aggressively than any type of endowment manager, pension manager. Um, you have to have some exposure to real assets generally. Um, you know, Ray Dalio's all-weather portfolios, one, the Yale Endowments, um, you know, uh, models is another good one that, ha- you know, they all have exposure to to real assets for this this reason that you know if you go into an inflationary environment 
uh, it's usually not good for both stocks and bonds, right? Obviously, inflation is you know means higher interest rates, means you know falling bond prices, um, which is not good. But falling bond prices uh, also means higher risk-free interest rates, which means I mean, look at look at how much money has flowed into dividend-focused ETFs over the last ten years. It's it's unbelievable. Um, people trying to escape zero yielding debt or negative yielding debt around the world have gone largely into U.S. equities to try and say, hey, I can get two, three, four, four percent dividend yield. But if risk-free rates ever go back to five percent, let's say you can get five percent on a thirty-year, you know, a ten-year Treasury note. What's that going to do to, I mean, how many people who have poured into dividend-focused funds and things are going to say, wait a second, if I can get 5% risk-free, why am I trying, you know, taking all this risk to try and get 2%? Um, and, and so, you know, money's going to flow back out of those dividend-focused funds, and it's going to be, it's going to put a, a damper on, on equity valuations um, for that reason. Um, you know, Tina, that, that there is no alternative to owning stocks has been a really popular um, thing in the last 10 years. When there is a, when there is a, a very attractive risk-free alternative, that Tina is going to work in reverse. And so I, I do think that's a risk that most people don't appreciate. I do think we're probably already in the midst of a regime change from disinflation to inflation, um, but that's a much you know different macro discussion. I, I do think that uh, that generally people are taking far more inflation risk in their portfolio today than they, they really appreciate. Yeah, and I think investors are actually citing relative value as a reason of why they're investing in whether it might be a sovereign or something else, comparing you know, the least dirty shirt or, or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. And, and I think the one thing people don't realize is low interest rates explain high equity valuations, but they don't justify high equity valuations. That's a really important distinction. So uh, low interest rates explain why investors go out on the risk curve because they're forced to by the Fed, 0% interest rates, whatever, and quantitative easing. We're going to buy up your your risk-free security, so you have to go buy risk somewhere. Um, but it doesn't justify, and, and people think, oh no, when interest rates are low, it justifies me by paying a higher valuation for stocks. Well, the only way it would justify is if you, because you're essentially, think about a, a, a discounted cash flow model. Um, you lower the discount rate, right? And it makes the value of the security go by a lot higher. But if you're lowering the discount rate without lowering the growth rate of earnings, then you're, you're basically disregarding, you know, uh, all of corporate history, which shows that corporate earnings essentially follow, um, you know, interest rates very, very closely. So interest rates are low, growth is going to be low. Interest rates are high, growth is going to be higher. So if you're lowering the discount rate without lowering the growth rate, you're actually, you know, making a huge mistake. And so I think this is what people are doing is they're saying, you know, this low interest rates justify, but they're keeping the earnings growth rate high. And we've seen essentially zero earnings growth in the last 10 years from the last peak um, to today. If you look at NIPA profits and these things, we've had no earnings growth. So if you're assuming higher earnings growth than we're actually experiencing, then, then you're making a, a valuation error that right there. Right. And as far as these corporate buybacks, so originally the idea was lower interest rates, companies would be able to borrow more cheaply and then invest in property, plant and equipment, hopefully 
we'd see rate, wage growth, and we haven't really seen any of that. We've seen companies buying back their own stock, you know, removing shares from the marketplace, thereby increasing the share price of the stock itself. How do you view the, these buybacks as far as fueling a lot of the growth in, let's say, the S&P 500? Well, it, you know, you look at um, just the demand for equities in the last 10 years, and more than 90% of it has come from corporations themselves. It's come from the buybacks. Uh, you know, you look at investor flows, and we've seen um, not much in the way. I mean, it's essentially a net neutral, I think, in terms of flows into or out of equities on the on the part of you know domestic investors um foreign investors you know flow back and forth too but really what has created this huge boom um in the market has been has been buybacks a lot of it i think the the important thing to think about there is how sustainable is this because corporate leverage is now uh, at record highs and um you know at, at some point companies aren't going to be able to buy, you know uh spend more on buybacks and m&a um, then they're actually earning cash flow. And they've done that since 2012, 13. They've done it for, um, you know, seven, six, seven years now. Uh, they've been spending more on buybacks and M&A than they've actually been earning in cash flow. And that's resulted in a massive surge in corporate leverage. They've essentially borrowed the difference. Uh, and, you know, those things, if you are spending, if you're borrowing to spend on, you know, like, employee training or building new factories or, you know, all these types of capital expenditures that are, are, um, you know, healthy for the business over the long run, then those things can be, I think, can be justified, um, by increasing your economic value over time. But when you're just doing financial engineering like companies have been doing over the last 10 years, right, it, it, it leaves the balance sheets, you know, totally hollowed out, especially buybacks. Um, but you know, when you're, you're doing mergers too, you're, you're buying, let's say 50% assets and the other 50% of the purchase price is just going to goodwill. So that's hollowed out the balance sheet, you know, balance sheets too. Um, and so a lot of people are rightfully worried in the next downturn, how is this leverage going to come back to, to bite people? Somebody pointed out on Twitter, um, you know, GE now, uh, you look at GE stock and look at the amount of buybacks, um, that they did over the last 20 years. They did more in buybacks than the stock is currently worth in the marketplace right now. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's, that's hollowing, and that's what hollowing out a company looks like. IBM is another good example. And I think we're, we're doing this on a large scale, hollowing out corporate America, um, you know, and, and basically just to, uh, prop up the stock prices, push up the stock prices to enrich shareholders in the short run and, and, and really, um, to enrich the, the top executives, uh, well, that transitions into monetary policy, and what was unconventional over a decade ago now seems to be normal, not just for the Fed, but central banks around the world. And now there's talk about using these policy tools indefinitely. So before 2008, the Fed's balance sheet grew up to around $800 billion, and then they took it all the way up to $4.5 trillion. So it's argued by some people that, okay, they're just conducting normal open market operations. And now that the balance sheet has grown so much, the other side of the coin is how are they ever going to be able to shrink this and get back to something more normalized? And is that even possible? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because I, and I think that when, you know, to distinguish between 
I think it's important to distinguish between quantitative easing and what's going on today with the Fed buying treasury bills again. I, I, you know, a lot of, there's a big debate about this and I, and I think that what they're doing now is not necessarily quantitative easing. Quantitative easing was a, was a policy put in place to buy longer term treasury notes, treasury bonds to try and keep the long end of the yield curve down to stimulate, to keep interest rates for things like mortgages and auto loans, um, low. And, um, you know, and especially mortgages. And so I think that in, in longer term corporate debt, all those kinds of things. And so to, that, that was easing in the true sense that they're trying to make it encourage debt creation, uh, in those longer term types of assets to support the economy. Today's buying of treasury bills, I, I agree with the Fed. I don't think it's quantitative easing because it's not targeting those longer term interest rates. Um, but I do think it's at more risk of being uh, considered monetization of the debt. Um, and, and to me, I think this is a, this is an important distinction because to me, monetization of the debt, once people start believing that's what's going on, um, that's when you start needing to worry about inflation and the value of the dollar. And, and I think that today, the, the reason that this, these new actions focus mainly on, on treasury bills risk that is because, you know, part of what's going on here is, the Treasury is issuing a, a massive amount of new debt, uh, and and really it's Treasury bill heavy. And so, if the Fed has to come in because there's not enough demand, natural demand for those assets, and the Fed has to come in and essentially monetize those, then that is uh, is different than quantitative easing. That is that is the Fed coming in and saying, hey, in order to keep interest rates low, we have to buy this up because there's not enough natural demand. And to me. That's the point where um, the the Fed really begins to risk an inflationary dynamic. Where people start saying, "Wait, look, the government can't fund itself any longer without the Fed's help. They need the Fed to come in and start buying these, or else interest rates are going to go way up." And and to me, that that's that's the distinction. And, and really, what drives inflation? And my friend John Hussman has some, done some good work here. Is people abandoning the dollar? Uh, because of, uh, their worries regarding the amount of debt, uh, at the federal level. And so I think this, this ties directly into that, that if people start looking at this like the Fed is issuing way too much new debt, it cannot be absorbed by the market without the Fed coming in to monetize it. That's when, you know, this could be dangerous for the dollar and inflation could, could, uh, make a real comeback. Right. And last I checked, I believe Japan and China each own around two trillion of the total, almost 23 trillion outstanding. So how would that actually show up? Would that be failed treasury auction? Would that be how would that actually show up in the marketplace? I think we're seeing it in the repo market. I think the problems in the repo market suggest that, um, you know, there's not enough natural demand for, for all these treasuries. That, I mean, that's, that's part of it, but, you know, repo, mm-hmm. repo spiked again last week. It spiked, you know, um, in late September and spiked again, you know, last week was at mid, we're here mid October and the, 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 you know, fiscal year end issues should have ended on September 30. Those haven't ended. Um, so there, there's definitely some, some, there's some, a bunch of different moving parts with this, with this repo thing. And I don't, 
pretend to be a repo expert. Um, but I do think I have a, a, a decent handle on, on what's going on here. The banks are, are being constrained by regulations where they can't go, you know, into the repo market and, and make these loans. Um, <clears throat> but I think also part of it is the, the government is just issuing so many new treasury bills that the markets are, are being a little bit, uh, um, stressed in absorbing all this new supply. And, and I think if, if that, if people start realizing that, then the dollar, and we're going to start seeing the dollar tank. And we saw the dollar reverse pretty hard recently. So, um, I, you know, I, I think all these things are pointing to, um, you know, some, some stress in, in the financial system. I think it's more than just, um, regulatory issues. There's probably some, there, there could be some shadow banking things going on, um, that are stressing repo. And, uh, I think it's also just, um, you know, at the same time, we're having massive new issuance and treasury bills. Yeah, and this brings up a good point about confidence in central bankers to be able to micromanage things and, and give us this kind of soft landing or spur this organic growth. And you've talked about, and maybe you can reiterate a little bit about the 10 year note, maybe that we saw the low there in the, um, it was summer, summer 2016 down to 1.36, something like that. Now, it seems like the Fed is, is really just trying to micromanage things, and so far they've been able to keep control of rates on the short end, and the bond market clearly is showing that they don't believe equity prices as far as where the economy is is heading and where the, the growth is actually coming from. How do you see, foresee that happening as far as maybe people losing confidence in the central banks to be able to micromanage things? And also to your point about just the demand maybe not being there as far as the U.S. debt load to be able to, you know, keep that debt in check. Now, a lot of people point to the fact, okay, the Fed can't really allow rates to rise because of the interest on the, on the debt and other reasons. So maybe they come in with more QE, maybe they double the balance sheet or triple it, taking a cue from Japan. How do you actually see that piece playing out? I know that's a multi, multi-faceted question there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the people lose faith in the Fed during every bear market. I mean, that's basically one of the, one of the, uh, you know, I guess characteristics of a bear market. And, you know, people are looking at the Fed cutting interest rates, you know, the Fed funds rate and saying, well, shouldn't that be supportive? Well, it's supportive of um, risk assets and quantitative easing so long as people have faith in the Fed's ability to support the economy. But, you know, the Fed really doesn't have much ability to support the economy, especially after we've become this indented. Think about think about this. The, the Fed basically can control short-term interest rates through the Fed funds rate, can control long-term interest rates to some extent extent through quantitative easing. But they lower rates on at both levels to try and stimulate debt creation. But when you're 10 years into a bull market, the longest bull market in history, and they've already had interest rates at zero for the better part of that 10-year period, pretty much all the debt that people have wanted to take on, they've taken on. And so at this point in the cycle, lowering interest rates is not going to spur a ton of new debt creation, which is maybe what they need to stave off recession. And so the Fed's ability to, to, to prop up the economy is extremely limited at this point. And even during the next recession, 
it's going to be extremely limited. Let's say they go back to zero and there's already still this tons of debt. How are they going to create or inspire people to create more debt? You can buy up all the, the long-term debt you want, take mortgage interest rates back to 3% again or something. And, you know, is that going to spur a bunch of people to go buy homes? I, I don't know. I think there's already been a bunch of debt creation and the feds realizing that they are, are going to be, um, you know, rendered, rendered impotent in the next, um, next recession. So, People are talking about this already. Uh, it's going to come upon fiscal policy. Uh, it, it's going to land on the shoulders of fiscal policy to really try and support the economy in the next um, downturn. And what does that mean? That means, you know, $2 trillion of infrastructure spending. It means potentially a Green New Deal, uh, which would be trillions of dollars of more, more spending. Um, it means those types of programs are going to have to come in. Um, and, you know, we already know Trump wants infrastructure spending. Democrats want it. Um, the Green New Deal is probably more of a, a partisan uh, issue, but it depends on who's in the White House. But there's going to be fiscal stimulus um, and to a great degree. And the Fed's probably going to be pressured to monetize that. And so these are all the types of things that I think point to um, a, a major dollar bear market, uh, which I think we already began in early 16. Um uh, and, you know, that, that is, is probably going to be, continue. So I think this is also why it's important to watch, watch the dollar because the dollar is going to d- be discounting these things. Um, <clears throat> and, and so I, yeah, I, I really think that, that yes, we're going to see fiscal stimulus come in. That's going to be where people are going to be questioning, okay, that we already have a trillion dollar, uh, federal deficit. Now we're going to blow that out to two, maybe three trillion dollars. We're starting to talk about, um, you know, 10% of, you know, blowing out past 10% of GDP. Uh, and so those are the things that I, that I think are going to be the major market moving things over the next, uh, you know, several years. Right. And you mentioned MMT infrastructure spending. You mentioned the $2 trillion plan. A few people have talked about, it. I know Andrew Yang is talking about UBI and giving everyone a thousand dollars at the cost of around 2 trillion. You mentioned that the Green New Deal, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, it's it's going to be infrastructure spending. And a lot of people have been actually looking at that and saying, okay, this could actually be the inflationary impetus to to start that inflation kickoff that we haven't seen at all. How do you actually see this playing out as far as on the investment landscape? You've talked about gold. A lot of investors have kind of gotten this wrong and really, it's more about, I think, playing out on a much longer term time horizon. You mentioned the dollar. So a lot of people have been looking at the Dixie and whatever level it is, 95, 98, and kind of looking at this and saying, OK, we're having this melt up scenario. And as soon as this thing breaks down, then everything is off the table and it's going to be that regime shift. How fast will this inflationary or could this inflationary kind of regime shift kick in? We've seen in the past, we had cash for clunkers with Obama. We had, I think it was under uh, George W. Bush, everyone got a $200 check to go out and spend money with. We've seen some of this before, but I think some people are looking at this and saying, okay, this could really be, be the driver to have people go out and kickstart the economy. So the question is really there, how do you see all of this coming together and coming to a head? And what does that mean for things like gold and real assets in the future? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it, there's there's a, a bunch of different things. I mean, I, for me, the inflationary d- dynamic comes back to this uh, uh, the fe- federal deficit, and I mean, so really, where inflation comes is when people start to lose faith in the currency, even mm-hmm. more so than the central bank. Um, and and I think that's why we haven't seen um, inflation to any you know real degree. I, I would say inflation right now is is higher than most people believe. I think a lot of people say that you know well the Fed said there's no inflation. Of course core CPI is running two point two percent, you know, year over year. Um, there's a bunch of other types of measures, um, whether it's sticky CPI or you know whatever, that's all running, you know, two and a half, three percent. Um so but the other half of this inflationary dynamic is you have to look at what was the most disinflationary um, dynamic over the last 30, 40 years, really since interest rates peaked in, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And to me, one of those, um, one of the most major, uh, is, uh, globalization, right? Companies were able to ship jobs overseas, offshore labor, and dramatically reduce their labor costs, um, which was a hugely, um, disinflationary, um, dynamic. Now we're seeing, starting to see, and we're seeing already, uh, globalization begin to reverse course. Uh, we're seeing that with the trade wars. We're seeing it with now we're imposing tariffs on Europe and this globalization trend towards open borders for trade on scuffs seen with Brexit is, is starting to go the other way where people are, are staying. Wait, hold on. A lot of the political problems that we're having now can be traced back to globalization. Is that, you know, people losing their jobs? Is that the, you know, middle class being hollowed out as these companies uh, ship jobs overseas um, to grow their profits, profit margins, and uh, the the labor class, the middle class, has uh, been hurt as a result. And so we're seeing a, a reversal in a lot of these political, uh, you know, ideas towards more nationalist um, type of anti-globalist policies. And to me, if uh, you know that was a very disinflationary force for the last 30 years, then a reversal of globalization. Is going to be an inflationary force, uh, and, and so I, I, I think it, it's really, um, you know, it's that simple. There are other factors. Demographics also suggest inflation is going to make a comeback, uh, but, but I do think that gold um, is is a terrific thing to own. I've been writing about it since mid 2015, and you know, people have said, well, you know, gold's just done started to do well this year. Gold's up 50 percent since the 2015 low. Uh, mm-hmm. four, four years ago. So gold has done really, really well over the last four years, especially when you compare it to, you know, what, what a lot of other things have done. You know, bonds, bond yields bottom 2016. They're testing those, those lows again now. So bonds have done what? 2%, um, you know, one and a half, 2% per year over, you know, over that time frame. Prices are pretty much the same since mid 2016. Stocks have not, I mean, have, have gone up, but they've gone nowhere for the last two years. Um, you know, gold's probably the best performing asset class over the last three, four, five years. Um, and I think that's going to continue. I, I, I think in the short run, gold could continue to, to correct, come back to that test, that breakout level around, you know, 1400 ish. Um, but in, in the short run, but longer term, um, you know, the, the, the dollar is very correlated to the federal deficit. When the deficit widens as a percent of GDP dollar goes down, uh, and what do you want to own as an alternative currency to the dollar? Um, to me, the, the best thing um, by far is is gold. Uh, I don't want to own euros or yen. 
even though I think they'll probably do better than the dollar over the next few years. Gold in an environment where the, where people are beginning to lose faith in the, uh, faith in the, in the dollar, gold could really take off. And I, I think in that, in that type of a scenario, if you see a, a blowout in the deficit, we're talking two trillion dollars, gold is going to be much, much higher, um, than it is today in that scenario. Right, and just today I saw on your Twitter you actually uh, posted an article in Barron's about globalization ending and kind of how to prepare for what what's next there, which was a pretty interesting article. Now, you've been writing the Felder Report since 2005, and you know there's a lot of interesting market insights and actionable ideas. People can subscribe. There's there's different tiers available. Um, and also your podcast, which is super interesting and <laughs> super investors and the art of worldly wisdom. And this is a name you got from Buffett's famous article that a lot of investors have probably read, the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. So how do you, your investment style is really interesting because it, it's a value oriented style. And you have this seemingly kind of macro overlay. How would, how would you describe your investing style? And why don't you tell us a little bit more about your work and how people can, can find you and inter- interact with some of your work? Sure. Yeah. You know, it is, I, I think you described it very well. I, I'm a, I'm a traditional value investor. Uh, you know, I, I deep value. I want to find things that are seriously out of favor. So I want to find something that's cheap. I want to find something. I try and pair technicals, uh, unlike most value investors. So I don't want to buy something that has good downside momentum. Um, I want to buy something that it appears is really cheap, but also the markets are beginning to agree with me that uh, this thing is getting too cheap, losing momentum on the downside. I also like to I look a, a ton, and this dates back to my time at the hedge fund, uh, at insider activities. So I want to find – I like to find predictive insider buying. I like to find insiders – who were really good at trading their own shares. And um, a good example of that is a stock that I've looked at recently is Ulta. If you look, just look at the insider buying in, in Ulta, Charles Heilbrunn um, you know, bought a huge slug of Ulta um, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. Stock went up, almost doubled, and they sold out uh, you know, a huge slug of that. Stock gets hammered down 30% in the last uh, several, you know, uh, several months. He recently stepped in and bought another huge slug of Alta, even even more than he bought two years ago. So, and he's a guy who has a really good track record. So, those are the types of things I'm looking for. Um, so, I want something that's cheap. I want technicals to agree with me in terms of momentum, and then I want um, the, the insiders to agree with me in terms of my assessment of value. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of try and pair that with a macro framework in terms of. Um, you know, today I don't want any general market risk at all in my personal portfolio. And so I'll hedge that out use by, by shorting, you know, ETFs or some individual stocks, uh, and things. Um, you know, that, that's really kind of the pro side of the newsletter. I also have a premium side that's geared towards more individual investors that where I have a model ETF portfolio where I basically just analyze the major asset classes, um, you know, stocks, bonds, uh, and real assets in terms of real estate and gold. And I, I kind of weight those different asset classes in the portfolio based on how relatively attractive I believe they are. Um, and it's, it's simple, a little more simple and straightforward to understand for, I think, indiv- individual investors. 
That's great. Yeah, I think there's there's something for everyone there. And the podcast, along with the newsletter, and then also the premium subscriptions, there's there's a lot of content and interesting things that you really won't find anywhere else. So the last question I'll end this with is, this has really been going on for a long time. This kind of whether you call it the market cycle, the business cycle, and there's talk about technology, as we've discussed earlier, and different forces, demographics. There seems to be this notion that, okay, maybe we won't actually be in for kind of a crash. Maybe this will be kind of a slow grind to a screeching halt. But history has shown that's not really often how things work. How would you actually be able to articulate what might happen as far as that argument goes. Yeah. And I've, I've been torn with that, this myself. I think, you know, you, you think about, I mean, one of the things I think about is what's the most hated stock in the world, but you know, and that helps me find ideas on the long side, but what's the, what's the greatest pain trade or what, you know, when you think about this mania and you think about what are, what is the greatest, every mania, every, every bull market or every, uh, uh, bubble, I should say, is driven by um, a misplaced um, belief or, a, or a, uh, a mistaken belief. And I think this mistaken belief that investors believe today is that no matter what price I pay or whatever, the stock market will always come back. And that's the evidence that they've been given. Um, 87 crash, market comes back. 2000.com bust, market comes back. Take some time, but market comes back. 2009 financial crisis, the most painful um, decline in stocks and recession that, that we've seen in generations. Stock market took, what, two or three years to gain back all of its losses. And we've seen that just during the past 10 years. Every correction market comes back. Um, and I think this might be the belief that is really tested in the next bear market, that the market always comes back. Um, you look at the, the, you know, the Japanese, the Nikkei peaked in 8990. And it's still down, you know, down um, at least a third, I think, today from that peak in 1990. So, right, Japanese market is is uh, is one that I, I think could that happen here. And uh, the way that I think that would happen here is if corporate profit margins revert to uh, historical mean and stay there, and profit margins don't come back, then stocks today are going to look extremely overvalued. Um, and, uh, to, to a degree that in 10 years time, stock prices may, may still be lower than the peaks we're setting today. And so I don't know. I, I do think with the amount of corporate debt that we have, it's going to be tough in a recession to avoid a, a, uh, a difficult period in the stock market because if, as the IMF believes, 40% of the, the companies around the world could default in a recession that's half as severe as the financial crisis. Then that's going to create a serious problem in the corporate debt markets around the world. That will be re- reflected in equity prices. I don't know how we avoid a 30, 40, 50% bear market in stocks in a short period of time in that type of a default scenario. Um, but at the same time, I understand that we could just have, uh, you know, some, some painful kind of slow bleed, uh, periods that just last uh, for a long time. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but, uh, but I do think there is a, is a significant risk that stocks 10 years from now are still significantly lower than they are today. Yeah. And you mentioned the Japanese Nikkei peaking 
at 89.90, never recovered the equity market there. Um, they have some of the worst demographics. You look at Europe, stock market peaked, hasn't recovered. Again, demographics aren't great. We look at the U.S., our demographics are okay, not as good as China and India, of course. But that's, I think, definitely an outstanding question and something that's been on investors' minds. Jesse, this was so valuable and great. Why don't you just give a shout out to your website and Twitter and, and where investors can actually sign up for your newsletter and, and premium content if they're interested? Yeah, sure. I, I spend a ton of time on Twitter. It's just at Jesse Felder. Um, I, I, there, I basically use Twitter to post all the stuff that I'm reading that I find valuable in kind of forming um, ideas about what where trends are headed. Um, and so if you're interested in just being bombarded with tons of articles every day, you can go and follow me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> the, the website, thefelderreport.com, um, there you can sign up for a free. I send out a free um, newsletter just on Saturday mornings. It's more of a consolidated version of what I do on Twitter. I basically pick the five most powerful things that I found during the week um, uh, and, and just send that out on Saturday mornings. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jesse. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it, and uh, best of luck with the show. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder... All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.